you're turning to the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, I want to add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. The precious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a privilege to me to worship the living God with you on the last day of 2023 and to be able to study God's word together with you, God's eternal word. I'm going to focus on Joel 2.25. I took, uh, you know, it's, it's a treacherous thing on a special occasion to, to select a text for the occasion and to parachute into the middle of a book without setting the context and telling you what's happening in the broader sphere. I took too much time doing that in the first service. So it's, there are only three chapters. You can memorize this book by the 15th. And uh, if you'll set your, set your mind to it. So I'm not going to do, do a lot of that. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 21 to 27. And we're going to uh, camp out a while on verse 25, which addresses this business of uh, the restoration of years. When you get to be a certain age, you start to realize you know, I'm only assigned so many New Year's Days. Um, some of us this time of year, we start thinking about next season. And then sometimes we realize, well, there's going to be a next season. I, um, I've made a, a few feeble attempts to write um, a book of daily readings. The classic in the genre the model for everybody who tries to do that is a book called My Utmost for His Highest. It's a book written by a widow who blessedly was a stenographer. And when her husband died, she took a few years to compile, compile her notes of his teaching in 365 daily readings. Now, many of you will know that I'm talking about Oswald Chambers, and I'm talking about the book, My Upmost for His Highest. When Oswald Chambers was my age, he'd been dead 30 years. Uh, I've outlived C.S. Lewis by uh, eight years, Spurgeon by 16 years, and sometimes you look around and you say, Lord, why did you spare me? You know, we often ask the question, well, why does somebody die or why am I going to die? We need to ask the question, why are we going to live? Why are we still alive? What are we supposed to do in the time that we have left to us? I will tell you this about the book of Joel. It's a book that's, that's quoted in the New Testament. Some of the quotes are very uh, critical. Uh, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel. Peter explained the phenomena on the day of Pentecost in terms of a prophecy in Joel 2. Um, the people who were witnessing what was going on and the people speaking language they never learned, to, languages they never learned, the people who didn't know those languages and they were preaching the gospel to them. And the, the unbelieving onlookers said, well, these people are just drunk. Peter gives two answers. One's very practical and common sense. First, he says, you know what? It's too early in the morning to get drunk. That's not a plausible theory, guys. Then he quotes 
the prophecy of Joel. Um, Again, it's a book about warning and about hope. Every sermon should be about warning and hope. Um, One reason we don't have revival is because there's no warning from the pulpit. Uh, Hell is no longer hot. Dying in unbelief is no longer a thing to be dreaded and avoided. Evangelism is no longer urgent. Witnessing is not only, is not one of the main reasons the Lord left us here, I'm afraid. Uh, Joel, in many ways, is a corrective to that. Now, in context, the warning is about a plague of locusts, okay? And which leads to uh, economic devastation, but I'm telling you too much. Let's just concentrate on the verses at hand. This is Joel 2, beginning in verse 21. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. Joel 2.21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. This is the verse. So I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am the midst of Israel. I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. The word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, may your spirit cause us to know things we've not yet discovered, cause us to feel things we ought to have felt but have not, to be changed in ways that we need to be changed by these means of change, these means of grace, namely the word of God read and preached and heeded. May your spirit do his transformative work in our hearts that we might know and have affirmed once again that you are indeed in our midst. For we ask it in our great Savior's name, even Christ our Lord. Amen. I think for most of us, we regard the new year with mixed emotions. Now, some of that um, has to do with our experience in the old year. And actually every day, no matter what our experiences have been, the alert Christian will know that every day God gives us something to celebrate. He really does. Even if it's just simply the fact that we're alive 
that we've made it to the end of one year and the beginning of a new year. And the sensitive Christian will be aware that there are things to lament, especially as he pays attention to the losses of other people, no matter what gains I may have had in the new year or in the old year. Um, I'll tell you that the prayer that Jane and I have prayed most urgently, most consistently, and most fervently for almost two decades was answered late in 2023. And we are, uh, we're overwhelmed with feelings of gratitude toward the Lord for answered prayer. When I coach missionaries about raising support, as I often have the privilege of doing that, one thing I tell them is say thank you ten times for everything you say, every time you say please. And I think that's a great perspective to have with the Lord, just to remember to say thank you. I loved it when um, in that catalog of thanksgiving that Wes just gave us in his, his prayer. Um, I can't remember if he thanked the Lord for oxygen or lungs. I, I, I couldn't remember after the first prayer. I meant to listen to the second prayer, and I, I missed it again. But um, on my best devotional days, on my best devotional days, I thank God that he filled my lungs with air. I don't have a great devotional day every day. I have great goals in my devotional life. I don't have great achievement in my devotional life. But when I, when I hit my goals, there's a little litany of, of gratitude. And I think if, if, if we want to begin a devotional life, the first thing we do is we commit ourselves to the discipline of conscious daily gratitude crying out to the Lord in gratitude, uh, humble to the point where we want to weep because of the gratitude we feel. I mean, when we sang that song, your goodness is running after me. Didn't it move your heart to realize how true that is? And, and basically all our lives, if for no other reason than that he brought us to this room on the last day of the year. And on those good days, I say, Lord, I thank you for creating me in 1950. I thank you for taking me from my mother's womb on 26 October of that year, for filling my lungs with air, for showing me the breast, for giving me nourishment, for keeping me warm, for passing me from one pair of loving hands to another. That those hands kept me clean, those hands kept me clothed, those hands held me close for teaching me to walk and talk and read and write. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. But I'm well aware that for some in our congregation, it was the worst year. (laughs) And sometimes the two emotions arrive almost at the same moment. We had a wedding in this church on January 14th. It wasn't just in the church, it was two staff members. And because of the King holiday, we didn't come to work on the Monday, on the 16th. And uh, because they postponed their honeymoon a month to hit the right weather and the right time and, and, and the right season, those newlyweds were in this office 
on Tuesday, January 17th, and I, the joy was thick on the ground. You could cut it with a knife. And then we were so high, and, and, and then we were just slammed. It was like emotional whiplash. I've never felt a change of, of mood that dramatic. And, you know, for some, the losses did not end at the beginning of the year. For some of us, the losses continued. At the, at the end of the year, um, one of the three or four most faithful evangelists in our congregation lost his wife for a second time, just as one of those widows lost a husband for a second time. And then a very high-achieving missionary who a year ago was expecting to see the Lord any, any day but was rescued miraculously by a liver transplant. Unexpectedly, his, his wife went to heaven. That, that happened in December. So I can rejoice that a long, long-standing prayer was answered. But we also weep with those who weep. Someone uh, in our church that I'm just getting ready to know, I'm just getting to know now, uh, his birthday's day after tomorrow. I'm not going to call his name. I probably should. Um, well, his first name is Willie. He wrote, he wrote this in, on Facebook yesterday. Goodbye, 2023. You've been a blessing. Looking forward to seeing what God has in store for 2024. That's the right note, isn't it? Just the right note. But some are reeling and some are, uh, <laughs> some are thinking, oh dear God, please don't let 2024 be like 2023. Well, Joel 2 has a message for us. Now, one of the most honored and outwardly successful ministers in America has uh, gone off the rails. And basically what he's wanted to do is to decouple the Old Testament from the gospel. And you can't do that. That's wrong. And one reason we know it's wrong is because the New Testament says that's wrong. And so are we to get a message from the Old Testament that's relevant for 2024? Romans 15, 4 says this, whatever things were written before, and he's talking about the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now we learn from Joel that it's not just for our learning, but it's for our children's learning. This is the third verse of Joel. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. And by the way, those who've blown it with not telling our children all the things we should have told them, like me, well, if we're still alive, we may have grandchildren. We may have another opportunity. Friends, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. And there's a message here of warning and hope. Now, in context, the warning is about a plague of locusts that's coming. 
Joel was probably almost the earliest of the minor prophets, 9th century BC, probably preaching and prophesying in in Jerusalem. But there's a relevance here for our children. We live in such prosperity. We live in such comparative security. We know that we have some uh, encroachments on our uh, security in our particular part of of the state, and, uh, but we've been so relatively secure for so long, and we've assumed prosperity all along. And you know what? Some of us are so old, few of us in this congregation, that we may make it out of here in relative prosperity, but there's no guarantee for our children. There's no guarantee for our grandchildren that they'll always know the security and prosperity that most of us have known. Uh, a man, um, the man who led me to Christ, who also went off the rails, by the way, um, one of the first things I ever heard taught when I became a Christian, he said, the reason so many children fall away is because their parents never prepare them to suffer. They never prepare them for difficulty. And they're not well armed against difficulty. You know, we're going to face difficulty whether we live in a prosperous nation or not, whether we have a high income or not. We're mortals. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that this passing glory might be of God and not of ourselves. We are a mortal people living in dying bodies. And we need to understand the warnings of Holy Scripture if we're to be prepared in the days to come. Now, um, one of the remarkable things about Joel is even though this plague of locusts is a judgment, we're not really told anything about the sin that brought the judgment on. Now, there's something said about drunkards, but it's not a judgment on on drunkenness. It's an interesting thing to think about at New Year's, but uh, Joel begins by saying, "You, you drunkards need to sober up and pay attention to what's really happening around you. We know that there has been sin because there are commands to return to the Lord. Well, if there's a need to return to the Lord, there must have been a departure from the Lord. But amazingly, and in contradistinction to many of the other prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, the sins themselves are not elaborated. There's nothing about profaning Sabbaths. There's nothing about idolatry. There's nothing about uh, ignoring the commandments. But the judgment is elaborated. Even the names of the different um, species of locusts are enumerated in Joel's warning in this prophecy. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And one thing that's commanded in the prophecy is that there should be the right emotional responses to God's judgment. Um, You realize that all emotions are appropriate in their time, at the right season, even the emotion of hatred. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to hate, and there are things which should be hated. Uh, Again, some of us, small demographic at Harvest, can remember uh, the B-Y-R-D-S. Their first cover was Mr. Tambourine Man. They, 1965, again, I've said this before, they rescued 
Bob Dylan's song from Bob Dylan's voice. And they were also famous, they were also famous for a song, a Pete Singer song, that quoted Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3 is about the appropriateness of certain emotions at certain times. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn. And there's a time to laugh, and there's a time to cry. And that's a part of the song, and that's a part of the message of Joel. Uh, Most of the emotions, especially in the beginning, are negative. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 8, 11, 13, 2, 12, 13, and 17. Even the priests are told to lament, to howl, to cry, to feel devastation, because devastation was happening. Actually, it's a time of great economic dislocation. And you know one of the great things that's lamented? And there's nothing to eat because of the locusts, because of the famine and the fire that would follow the locusts. And one of the great things that's lamented is when we have economic devastation, our worship is disturbed. Now, in the case of the ancient Jews, the worship was disturbed because things were so bad, they didn't have anything to bring to the temple for sacrifice, to offer the Lord. They couldn't offer anything to the Lord because they didn't have anything to offer. And that's a part of the situation that's described in chapter 1. I I hate it that this is true, but the same phenomenon happens among us at superficial levels. I lived in Dallas during the 70s, and there were names that were well known to me which graced the boards of evangelical institutions. And uh, men who served in leadership in the great Bible preaching churches. In the 80s, there was a downturn in Texas. Um, so bad that some of the very rich got soaked. It had a little something to do with the collapse of oil prices. It had something to do with a run that um, the, uh, oh my goodness, I forgot their names. A run that they did on, on the silver, the hunts had on, on the silver market. Uh, Things got so bad that the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Clint Murchison, who was a believer, by the way, had to sell. John Conley, who'd been Secretary of the Treasurer of the United States, had declared bankruptcy. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Assets of $30 million, liabilities of $110 million. Literally, he had to auction the ranch, the man that was in the same car with John Kennedy on the day that that he was shot. And lots of these high flyers, they were on these boards, frankly, because they were wealthy, and they helped them raise money. And you know what happened? Some names that were known to me began to drop out of the Christian life. They dropped out of their marriage. They stopped going to church. It was like, Lord, you know, we can make this Christian thing work as long as you keep us rich. But Lord, if if you're not going to keep us rich... You don't expect us to play ball in that context, do you? Prosperity is a test, just as much as adversity. And Jehovah reigns, whether we have plenty or whether we have little. And we're commanded to maintain the right emotional distress when there's devastation that matters and the right emotional confidence when we lose things that don't 
matter. Now, what are you supposed to do in an emergency? What are you supposed to do when locusts eat everything? What are you supposed to do with, uh, when you lose things that even make it hard for you to worship? What are we supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you what happened in Joel. They were commanded to consecrate the season. Joel 2.15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Have you ever been in a church that consecrated a fast? I haven't been in harvest long enough to know if it's ever happened here. It must have been mentioned sometime last January. Call a sacred assembly. That happened. It happened in most of our churches in 9-11. I was living in Memphis in 9-11, 2001. I I think most of the churches called a solemn assembly. Our church did. Probably the churches that you were worshiping in did. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. And what we do is we ask God to sanctify our sorrows. Because God is sovereign over our sorrows. Because God is Lord over our losses. You know, one of the amazing things about the elaboration of this judgment is even the different species of the locusts are mentioned. But the other thing that's amazing is that God calls the locusts my army. God measures out the quantum of our devastation. Now, we can act like it's all the devil and God doesn't have anything to do with it. But let me tell you something. Um, I'm not comforted by the idea that God has sort of let go of everything and is is standing in a distance. That doesn't comfort me at all. Some people need that kind of myth to make their theology manageable. But it's no part of what the Scripture teaches. The very locusts themselves are compared to an army of God. Hudson Taylor said, the size of the problem is not that important. It's the position of the problem. If I encounter a great tragedy and it gets between me and God, the problem is woeful. The problem is truly tragic. But if I keep Christ between myself and the tragedy, the larger the tragedy, the firmer I'm pressed upon the breast of my Savior. And the priests were instructed to, look, to, to use the coming catastrophe to summon the flock to worship the Lord. Now, here's the point uh, I'd like to get to. God promises to restore whatever's lost. Now, I want to be careful here. We have to nuance this. Here's the first thing. Sometimes Christian leaders make assumptions that they know why suffering overtakes a nation or why suffering overtakes an individual. Let me tell you, nobody knows how to do that except for an inspired prophet. Nobody knows how to do that. Uh, I mentioned a while ago the man at whose meeting I came to know the Lord. He made one fatal mistake, and this is why he went off the rails later. He thought he could explain the suffering of anybody. He thought if something bad happened to you or you had some difficulty, he thought that he had the insight 
to tell you what sin was in your life to make it happen. That's absolute nonsense. Only a prophet can do that. We do reap what we sow. We do suffer some losses, and there, are, there, there certainly is suffering because of our sin and because of, of our ill desert, but not all. Not all. Amy Carmichael left her home in Northern Ireland and stayed overseas for 51 years without a furlough. In the last 20 years of her life, ministering in the oven of South Africa without an air conditioner, rescuing little girls from temple prostitution, she fell in a construction ditch and was an invalid for 20 years of her life, last 20 years of her life. You think that's because Amy Carmichael sinned? Some of you can remember Chariots of Fire, the winner of most, uh, uh, best picture. It wasn't a film made by Christians. It was a film about a Christian. And what a Christian. Eric Little, after winning the gold medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics, he went to the mission field. And he stayed there till he died. And he died in a Japanese concentration camp. He was a missionary to China just a very short time before liberation. He died in 1945. And he died throwing up from a brain tumor in a Japanese concentration camp. You think that was because he was sinner? You know, Jesus warns us about this kind of calibration of uh, assigning sin or suffering to the sins of certain individuals. He does it in Luke 13. R.C. Sproul used to make a big deal out of this. Remember when the Lord said, do you think those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Or do you think that those Galileans who had their blood mixed with their sacrifices by Pilate, do you think they were worse sinners than the other sinners in Jerusalem? Do you really think that? Are you that foolish to draw that kind of inference? You know, there was a huge earthquake in Lisbon in 1755. 30 to 40,000 people died. And there were some public Christians who tried to uh, tie that to the sins of Lisbon. And there were some pretty clever secular people, Voltaire was one of them, who said, by the way, in the, in the tremor, a lot of people died in the tsunami that followed, but in the first, the first tremor was on a Sunday, and most of the people who died died at church. And there were secular critics who said, well, isn't it amazing that the churches were destroyed, but the brothels were spared? We saw this when the HIV epidemic got traction. And when two that I can think of, very public media Christians in our country, evangelicals said, well, it's God's judgment on homosexuality. What about Arthur Ashe? the Wimbledon champion, who I think became a believer. I witnessed to him personally in the Jacksonville, North Carolina airport, and he received my copy of Mere Christianity, which I happened to have in the back seat of my car, with great humility and faith and assurances. He got, he got the virus from a blood transfusion. What about a minister in our community 
in a church where our pastor has roots, who was HIV positive the whole time he was pastor there because he's hemophiliac. Only God knows why we suffer certain things for certain reasons. And we do suffer. And we suffer loss. But here's what we must understand. What you lose, Christian, what you lose, Jesus will restore. You know one thing I hate to lose? I hate to lose Christmas. I don't like it. I don't like it to think, I, well, you know, you can still play the carols, but you're a little bit weird if you take it too far into January. Um, I've lived in three foreign countries for years. Germany, Russia, and Hungary. I've lived in two other foreign countries for months, France and Azerbaijan. And as I get to know foreign peoples, I always compliment them on the things unique to their culture, and the wonderful things about their own countries. Americans have a, a reputation for stridency and arrogance, I'm afraid, when we go abroad, and we're pretty full of ourselves. But there is, I, I, if I get to know them well, I tell them if there's one thing I would, like, I would love to give you from my country is the experience of a child at Christmas. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And of course, I, I haven't had that experience as a child for a long time. But I love watching children experience Christmas. You know, there's a set of books that are so dangerous because... Uh, they're wonderful, but they're dangerous because they're so good that they make idolatry easy because we have to remember that Aslan is not Christ. Aslan is a Christ figure. And there's some shaky theology in the Chronicles of Narnia. But they're, and they're not books of theology. Now, they are books which are, which are written to remind us of Christ, and to show us the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ in an unbelievably uh, unique way. But from the beginning, when the devil had taken over Narnia, it was uh, always winter and never Christmas. Well, we're bound for a place, friends, where the very best feelings we ever had of Christmas as a child. The very best feelings are better. Does it ever trouble you the things which are not in heaven? Uh, if it hasn't troubled you, then you probably haven't looked very hard. You know, there's no sun in heaven. Want to live in a place without the sun? You know, there's no sea in heaven. Want to live in a place without the sea? You know, there's no marriage in heaven. I won't poll you on that when I get different answers. <laughs> but here's what we can't forget. 
The sun is created light. Our sun. There is an uncreated light which will one day shine upon us, which will make our own star, our own sun, look like a shadow. Do you realize that? There is a majesty in heaven which will electrify us and ennoble us and delight us which will make the sea look like a puddle. Do you realize that? Marriage is a, th- a tricky thing to talk about. I, I, uh, I'm very conscious as a pastor when marriage is being extolled to realize that there are people in the congregation who are not married. Just as when we make a big deal, especially about Mother's Day, it's true about Father's Day also, but... Um, we make such a big deal about mothers, which we need to do and we ought to do and we want to do. But there are a lot of women who will never be mothers and have never been mothers. There are a lot of people who have either never been married or they have been married, but it was bad. Or they have been married and it was wonderful, but it's gone. It's gone because of an unwanted divorce. Or it's gone because of a death. Let me tell you about heaven, friends. There's no marrying or giving in marriage there. But it's not less than marriage. It's more than marriage. And there actually is a marriage there. It's not biological, it's theological. It's not sexual, it's spiritual. But here's the problem. We think the physical is more real than the spiritual. It's not. It's not. This waking physical life of ours is a dim, shadowy thing to the life we'll know in a place where we finally do not have to gaze upon God's goodness without the lens of besetting sin. And for me, that's unimaginable. And maybe the hardest thing for me to imagine about heaven is that verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, we shall be changed. And that verse in 1 John 3 that says, we shall be like him. Can you imagine to be like Christ? I can't. But I believe it. I carried my three-year-old son in my arms out the back door of our house in Munich. He's 39 now. He's preaching at First Savannah today. Say a prayer for him. He was holding a helium balloon, a Luftballon in German. And he let it go. And he thought his daddy could do anything. He found out that day that there's a lot of stuff his daddy can't do. And he begged for it back about the time it hit the treetops. It was irretrievable. And you know, 
we have things like that in life, or we had things like that in life, and then one day they're gone. And we think they're irretrievable. They're eaten by locusts. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, saith the Lord. Have you ever had years that the locusts ate? You know, I used to pastor a wonderful little church on the coast of North Carolina. And uh, a missionary to Columbia went out of that church, called me day before yesterday. A missionary from that church, a Jew who came to Christ, uh, wrote me from Israel the other day. And... Uh, <clears throat> It was amazing. We, we caught people at the decision-making moment of their lives because we were five miles from the largest Marine Corps air station in the world. And a lot of these uh, young men were making up their, their minds about what they were going to do when they got out of the Marine Corps, and we were able to just impact, intersect and impact just at the right moment. And it was glorious. You know, some years nothing happened. Forgive me for mentioning so many old songs. Remember that John Denver song, Some, day, some Days Are Diamonds, Some Days Are Stone. By the way, you know, there are scientific preachers and there are artistic preachers. Alistair Begg is an artistic preacher. John MacArthur is a scientific preacher. You're never going to hear John MacArthur burst into a Beatles song. <laughs> Alistair Begg does it all the time. But I, I have found in ministry that some years are diamond. And some years are stone. And nothing happens. You know, a tree doesn't grow in every season. But God, if we abide in Christ, God will bring the fruit and God will bring the increase. Now, I want to nuance this and then we'll be done. There are some things which are irretrievable. Um, there's something kind of hard to understand. We learn about it in 1 Corinthians and in other places, which we call a loss of rewards. And what that means is that my sin will diminish my reward in heaven. Um, There are some things I have not achieved at the kingdom, for the kingdom of God that other men and women have and will achieve. Men who are more pure in their youth, more faithful in their studies, more disciplined in their daily lives, more prayerful, more faithful to witness. The laurel wreath and the crown will go to them now, here's the thing about heaven, though. I have six skinny grandsons. And one eight-year-old, well, I'd say one uh, 13-year-old, I was sitting next to him at Thanksgiving, and he left a lot on his plate. And I can't really relate to that. And I was thinking... Though, he's, satisfied. he's not on a diet. He's satisfied. 
He ate all he wanted. And when, in, when I look at those of you who are fuller of glory in heaven than I, and there will be many of you, and who have a larger crown than I, and there will be many of you, I will still be satisfied. I will still have known joy to my capacity, and I won't be envious. I'm envious now, but I won't be envious then. And whatever you've lost, Christian, whether it was a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's an opportunity, something to do with family, something to do with possessions. I've known so many, so many men who've lost their estate, including my own father. God can repay. God promises to restore the years the locusts have eaten. Believe it. Because the promise belongs to you and your children. Now we're going to attempt something that may set Harvest Church back 11 years, and we've only been in existence 10 years. But uh, please don't blame Tony. I pitched this idea to him way too late in the game. But if Jonell will put a hymn up on the board, you know, one of the things that we prayed for was to know that God was in our midst. If I pitch this thing on the right note, we will know, believe me. How many people know this hymn? Raise your hand. That's pretty good. I want you people, God, well, that's not that good. I mean, that's probably 3 2%. My goodness, I want you to sing louder than you've ever sung in your life. And I want those 98% of you who do not know this hymn to learn it really fast, okay? I'm serious. Are you ready? Start praying. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home under the shadow of thy throne thy saints have dwelt secure Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received its frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night for the rising sun. Time like an ever-rolling stream 
bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Happy New Year.